Please open your Bible to Proverbs 4. Proverbs 4. We live in a wild world. And I probably don't need to tell you that for you to know that we live in a pretty wild world. Uh, These days, if you uh, scan the news, what you're going to find is a lot of conversation and a lot of talk about what's going on in technology and innovation. And so you'll hear about ChatGPT all the time. And this past week, Apple announced uh, what's going to make spatial computing accessible to the world. And they've got this thing called Vision Pro. And we hear about machine learning and artificial intelligence and augmented reality. All this crazy stuff going on. This past week, I came across an article which stated, experts warn the task of distinguishing what's real from what's not will impose a significant mental and cognitive burden on people in the AI era. This is the era we live in, the AI era. It goes on to say, AI-generated content could make it more difficult for people to make sense of the world around them. What many so-called experts see as this lingering threat is in our ability to distinguish between what is real and fake, what is true and false. So they say AI will make it more difficult for us to make sense of the world around us. Well, I have some news for this news. And that is people have been having trouble making sense of the world around them since before, well before, AI-generated content was even a thing. You take a look around and talk to anyone who is older, read a book written by someone who is dead, and while there are certainly some technologically unique things going on right now. Humanity has never been good at distinguishing between what is true and what is false. That problem is a problem that reared its ugly head in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve failed to distinguish between what was real and what was not. So they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And rather than this opening the door to wisdom and flourishing and fruitfulness of life, This act put an insurmountable distance between them and God, between them and flourishing, between them and true life. And since that time, humanity has had a whole lot of trouble making sense of the world around them, AI era or not. But into our madness, God speaks. God speaks order into our chaos. He speaks clarity into our confusion. He speaks truth into a world of lies. While everything around us seems to be changing, God is a God with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we look to Him. And we look to Him in order to make sense of the world around us. We look to Him in order to truly live. And that is what the book of Proverbs is all about. It's about looking to God who is wisdom, the source of wisdom, in order that we might truly live. So Proverbs is a book that's filled with gospel hope and promises as we look to God. Last week we considered together Proverbs 3. We saw how Proverbs 3 holds out to us the blessing and value of wisdom. And the argument of this chapter was that wisdom is better than anything else that you can pursue. Better than profit from gold and silver. Better than precious jewels. Wisdom is the way to blessing and life. 
But we live in a world that exchanges this truth for a lie. And the lie is that pursuing your own happiness is the path to true life. The way to the good life is to live for yourself. That's what our society says. But does this make us happy? Does this lead to lasting joy? Do you see a lot of old movie stars or rock stars or athletes who are just full of joy where they are now? Or do you see all these older people who once had it all in the eyes of the world? Do you see them now just trying to hold on to who they once were, to what they once had? Our society's path to happiness, this path of self-fulfillment, of self-expression, of riches and fame, power and beauty and fun, this path doesn't work, and it has never worked. Ultimately, it's slavery, it's bondage, because no matter how much we get, we always want more. No matter how much is invented, there's always more we want to invent. The longing is still there. The unrest is still there. The world thinks the answer still is just, just that next innovation, just around the corner. It's spatial computing, it's AI, whatever. We are slaves to sin. But the wisdom of the gospel promises us true freedom and real life. And the argument of the first nine chapters of Proverbs is a call to take hold of this tree of life. That's what's going on. Big picture. Take hold of this tree of life. Listen to this wisdom so that you might be blessed. So that you can flourish. So that you can truly live. And when we come to Proverbs 4, the argument is largely the same. We're going to see similar themes that we've already encountered. Similar imagery. Similar statements. Value wisdom. Hold on to wisdom. Walk in wisdom. But it's not by accident that we're hearing these things. Again, God didn't forget what was said in Proverbs 1-3. through 3. No, God wants us to hear these things again because He knows we need to hear them again. He knows our tendencies and our temptations. And He knows we need to remember to look again at the importance and place of wisdom so that we might truly live. So big picture, that's what's going on as we come to our text together. And in Proverbs 4, this, this father teacher wants to stress the all-encompassing nature of wisdom. How wisdom affects all of who we are. And we're going to look at that through three, three headings. Wisdom in your history, wisdom in your path, and wisdom in your body. So first, wisdom and your history. Wisdom and your history. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. I want to begin just by reading verses 1 and 2. Proverbs 4, verse 1. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. Now up until this point, Proverbs has been marked by a father teaching his son the value and goodness of wisdom. The father has implored his son, take hold of this tree of life. And when we come to Proverbs 4, there's this slight shift in audience. Did you see it? A little bit of a shift in audience. What's different here? Well, the father teacher has suddenly broadened his audience. Up until this point, it's been my son, my son, my son. And now it's here, oh, sons. Now, what's going on here? Did the father suddenly have more sons? No, no. But the father's focus has shifted 
to teaching about more than just the here and now. And so first, he looks into the future. One day, his son will have a son. And that son will have a son. There will be a lineage of sons, a generations of sons. And the father wants to address these sons with the same message that he's been giving his son. This is the message that his father taught him. And this is the message that the son must pass on to his sons. So it's here, O oh sons. So as he addresses future generations, he wants them to know who taught him. Look at verse 3. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me. Right here, the, the father teacher is saying that this wisdom teaching is not my idea. It's not what's new and novel. It's rooted in a past in a tradition. The wisdom he teaches is the wisdom of his father. So right here we encounter a grandfather's wisdom. It's wisdom that has been tried and tested. Wisdom that has been lived out. Now we live in a society and a culture that has, I would say, a complex relationship with tradition. On the one hand, there are aspects of, of tradition that our society readily embraces. So we, I mean, you might think of family traditions or national holidays or school traditions or sport traditions. Like there's a whole cottage industry of sports trivia and it's just all about kind of what's happened before and it, connecting the dot. Did you know that on this day in 1918, this happened? And yesterday was the first time it's happened since then. It's, we're talking about tradition. There's a part of all of us that is drawn to and celebrates traditions of these kinds. But on the other hand, when tradition is brought up in terms of, of how we live, so ethics and morality, or what we believe, or who we are, individuality, tradition is, is a bad word. It's something that our culture, our society does not look upon happily. But what the Bible teaches us about tradition is decidedly different. The Bible teaches us that the people of God are a people with a memory. We've talked about this. We've thought about it. That we are a people that remembers. A people rooted in tradition. So as we gather week after week, we don't stand here as the church that God has been waiting for. Finally. God, finally, now you can do what you've been wanting to do. No, He hasn't been waiting for us. We stand along with generations and a long line of generations of faithful Christians who have come before us. And I mean, we can think about one generation, two generations. We can go back further and further than that. And we have been plunged into the middle of a story that God has been writing. We've been plunged in the middle of that story and we have a history. And we must listen to what has come before us. And so the father teaches what his father taught him. And it's the same lesson we've heard about the importance and benefit of wisdom. So follow along with me beginning in verse 4. I'm going to read to verse 9. He taught me, again this is grandfather's wisdom, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget 
and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Again, his message is the same as what Proverbs has been teaching up to this point. If you want to live, if you want to truly live, does anybody want to live, to truly live here? I do. Get wisdom. Hold on to it. Walk by wisdom. Do not forget it. The word here that's repeated four times, get, get wisdom, get insight, is the same word that would be used to talk about buying something. If you buy anything ever, whatever you get, as verse 7 says, get wisdom. The grandfather says there's nothing more valuable, nothing more worth it. I like how the NIV translates verse 7. It says it this way, get wisdom, though it costs you all you have, get understanding. There's a real sense that, that wisdom, the wisdom that's held up by the Father, is costly. It will cost all that you are, all that you have. But the grandfather teaches it's worth it. It is completely worth it. Get wisdom and she will exalt you, honor you. She will put on your head the winner's crown. You don't have to be in the right place at the right time. You don't have to wait until wisdom goes on sale. You don't have to wait until you're smart enough or old enough. You simply have to make the decision to receive this gift, to receive this wisdom. We all face a choice before us. And whichever way we choose, it will cost all that we have. It will take our life. We can choose the way of the world, the path of personal happiness and self-fulfillment which has never led to true and everlasting joy, never, of every single human being that's ever lived, that path has never worked, never once. That's one option. Or we can choose the path of wisdom, the path of Jesus, who promises that whoever comes to him will never hunger or thirst, who promises to keep you, to guard you, to give you eternal life and never-ending joy. Whatever it costs you, get wisdom. Whatever you get, get wisdom. This is the story that wisdom invites you to be a part of. The one that's rooted in the salvation of God, which delivers us from all our troubles and gives us rest forever. Wisdom says that if you want to truly live, look back at what has been said. Look back at your history as part of the people of God and walk in their way. Walk in the way of wisdom. So wisdom changes how we understand our history. Second, wisdom and your path. That's the second heading, wisdom and your path. Follow along with me as I read Proverbs 4, 10 through 19. Hear my son and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction, do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it, 
do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. The imagery that carries this section is that of a journey, of a way, of a path. And the Father is speaking of how we live, how we move forward, where we go. And He wants His Son to know that there aren't a lot of good paths to choose from. And He just thinks this path is better than the other ones. It's not like going out to eat, where you plan to go out to eat on a, on a, for a given meal and you consider your options. And I mean, there's, you think about the places that are around you, and that's pretty good, and I could get that there, and I like that. Yeah, this one's probably better, so we're going to go there. This is not like that. There aren't a lot of good options to choose from. We live in a pluralistic society that, that wants us to think and tells us again and again that there are lots of paths to the good life. What Proverbs teaches us, without holding back, is that that's a lie. There is only one good path, one way. There's only one path that leads to life. There's one true path and many false paths. And to make his point, the father first presents the son with the the blessing of the way of wisdom. It will prolong the years of your life. It will give you confidence in your steps. Wisdom will be your life. And then we see the shift. The father begins to warn the son. All of the other paths out there are paths of wickedness. They are evil. So avoid them. Don't go on them. Turn away from them. These paths, they're, they're marked by those who are addicted to evil. Did you see how he described in verse 17 the wicked on these paths? They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. They eat, sleep, and breathe wickedness. They are drunk on violence. And they think that their way is the right way, the good way. They think that they are really living. But their path is darkness. I have to confess that when I was the age of some of you sitting here, the younger ones of you, (laughs) this is what I thought. I thought if I want to truly live, then this wisdom that my parents keep talking about, Like, that's not for me right now. If I want to truly live, like, I want to go out and do things. There's real freedom out there in the world. And what I found and what many, many others have found is there's no freedom out there. It's bondage, it's slavery, it's darkness. Contrast this with the path of wisdom, the path of the righteous. I love the image that the Father uses in verse 18. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Now I really enjoy trail running. And I love trail running. So going out, running on trails, several miles. And my favorite time to run is early in the morning. When it's just before dawn. And you go out and run and it's not very easy to see. You're on a trail. And then the sun begins to come up. And it's just, it's beautiful. It's peaceful. 
and the sun gets brighter and brighter as, as the day goes on, and you're able to see more and more clearly every step. But there have been other times where I haven't run. I've gone out early, especially in the winter. And at first, I didn't even have a headlamp. And so I was running with a friend of mine, a couple friends. They had headlamps. I didn't get the memo. Didn't realize it was that important. So I go out running, and it was deep darkness in the woods, right? Every single step, I'm wondering, could this be my last step for the next six weeks? Like, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't even know where I am. But these are trails that I'd run before. In the light, easy to navigate. In darkness, it was danger all around. When I run in darkness, do I stumble? Absolutely. And I can't even see what I stumble over. Chris, and, Chris Loftus and I, we've run on the CNO Canal before. And there was a time where it's like, eh, we look around. It's light enough. I think we'll be fine. We start going running. And it wasn't light enough. And so you're running, and this is Sino Canal towpath, and it's pretty clear and pretty open, and it's very straight. Not a big deal. But then all of a sudden, there will be like a tree that's fallen down or a branch. And you don't see it until you're like running into it. Terrible. You stumble. It's darkness. You can't make sense of the world around you in darkness. And this is the case for all those who are outside of Christ. And experts warn that it's really hard to tell what's real from what's not when you can't see. Experts warn that, right? So I'm running on the CNO Canal towpath. It's dark. Chris could testify. I've stopped for nothing before because I thought there was something, but there was nothing, absolutely nothing. I can't tell what's real from what's fake in deep darkness. It's impossible to make sense of the world when you're on the path of wickedness. But brothers and sisters, there's a far better way to go. A far better path. A path that gets brighter and brighter as we go. There's no promise that this path is an easy path or a path without challenges or sorrow or grief. But it's always a good path. It's always a hope-filled path. We walk on this path because of the promise that we have. The, the gospel promises that we see in Proverbs. For all those who have received the wisdom of Christ, the gospel, who are now united to him in his death and resurrection, who have received his righteousness, who walk in this newness of life, we have the sure hope of the rising sun. The light of Christ is shining brighter and brighter until full day. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And there's no darkness, no darkness, that can stop the shining of this light. Indeed, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is the, the gospel promise of wisdom, the promise of this path. So now moment by moment, day by day, step by step, we can walk in the gospel confidence and gospel hope that is ours in Jesus. But the path of wisdom isn't just about how we go or where we're going. It's about how we live and it affects all of who we are, which leads to our third point, third heading, wisdom and your body. Wisdom and your body. The language and imagery of this final section of chapter 4 it shifts the focus away from our path to our bodies. Follow along with me as I read 
beginning in verse 20 through 27, and pay attention to this shift. Pay attention to those words that refer to our bodies and what our bodies do. Verse 20, my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. If we are to make sense of the world around us, to make sense of our path, then wisdom must make its claim upon all that we are. It must make its claim upon all that we are. Wisdom must be what we hear and we see and we cherish. It must be how we speak, where we focus and how we walk. The wisdom of God changes how we understand our bodies and what we do with our bodies. The Christian faith is not a faith detached from the reality, the physical reality of who we are. It's an embodied faith. And as we make our way through the next chapters of Proverbs, this is a point the Father further develops. Wisdom is not something to hang in your closet and put on when it's convenient. Wisdom shapes and determines all that we are and all that we do. And in our society of, of personal freedom, of endless choice, this seems kind of extreme. Wisdom shapes and determines. This is what I just said. Probably just, for most, just went in one ear out the other. No big deal. This is extreme. Wisdom shapes and determines all that we are and all that we do. All that we are, all that we do. Wisdom makes claims on that. The gospel makes claims on that. You cannot come up with anything that's not included in all. All that you are, all that you do. That seems a little too all-encompassing to me. I like to compartmentalize. We like to compartmentalize. We like control. We've got our work friends or our school friends over here, our social media friends over here, our church friends over here, our family over here. We like to keep spiritual things separate from hobbies. Maybe we try and keep spiritual disciplines separate from vacation. But wisdom has no time for this. If you want the blessing and flourishing of life in Christ, a life of walking in wisdom, then what must you do? Allow wisdom to change all that you are. Allow Jesus to change all that you are. And this begins, as with all that Scripture addresses about us, begins with our hearts. In the Bible, our heart is, is not just that vital life-giving organ. It's the very center of who we are. It's the source of all that we are. Our thoughts, our desires, our loves, our actions. Proverbs 4.23 describes our heart as that place from which life flows. In the 17th century, Puritan pastor John Flavel, he writes this, he says, The heart is the seat of principles and the fountain of actions. The eye of God is 
and the eye of the Christian ought to be principally fixed upon the heart. The eye of God is, and the eye of the Christian ought to be principally fixed on the heart. If you want to make sense of the world around you, start by keeping your heart. Our hearts, they're like, like stringed instruments. Think about a guitar or a violin. I play guitar. Every time I pick up my guitar, there's something that I need to do. I need to tune my instrument. Our hearts are like this. They quickly and constantly go out of tune. They're affected by the environment around them. They're affected by how they're constructed. And so we must constantly be people who are tuning our hearts. The hymn says it this way, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. You've sung that many times probably in your life. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. That's what we're talking about, keeping our hearts. But how do we do this? How do we tune our hearts? We tune our hearts through three primary means. Corporate worship, fellowship, and meditation. Corporate worship, fellowship, and meditation. Now I put corporate worship intentionally first in that list because it's foundational to the other two. Consider the context in which Christianity was birthed. It was an oral culture, largely. People taught and told stories. If you were to learn, you were going to learn not by going to a library, but by going to listen to someone. You would assemble with other people and hear someone teach. We gather together and we listen. And this is how the church began. And it wasn't for 1,500 years before the Bible was even in print and able to be distributed on any mass scale. And so how did the people of God hear the truth? How did God build His church? He built it through, then and now, through the gathering of God's people. As they assembled together, and heard God's word proclaimed. It's a very modern thing, the fact that we all are sitting here and we all have Bibles. That's very modern. Very modern. It's a gift. And we are grateful to God for that gift. But God's primary means for us to keep our hearts begins with the gathering of God's people. God saves individuals to join them to his body. And so today, we do not neglect to meet together. We gather on the first day of the week to make sense of the world together as we are shaped and formed and built by God. That's what we do week after week. But this leads to a second means for keeping our heart, and that is fellowship. Fellowship. For as we assemble as God's people, we're brought into relationship with one another. And so through fellowship, through these relationships, we encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. This is how we keep our hearts. And Grace Church, just to commend you, I see you all prioritize these things. And it's a wonderful gift and it's wonderful to be a part of. You love to gather with God's people and sit under God's word and hear God's word proclaimed. You love to fellowship with one another, to gather together, to pray together, to encourage one another. May those always be hallmarks of Grace Church. May they be a part of the foundation of Grace Church. These are means by which not only do we glorify God and become like Jesus Christ, they're ways that we tune our hearts. Corporate worship, fellowship, there's a third means of keeping our hearts. And one that I think is nearly entirely neglected in the lives of many who follow Jesus. 
and we are much the worse for it. And I want you to know as I get into this, I told, uh, I was with a, a group of middle school and high school students in our church last night, and every time that I preach or John preach or Chris's preach, when we stand here as preachers, we are sitting in the congregation. God is the one that's addressing us through his word. God is the one that's making claims on our lives. So when I say these things and say we need to prioritize these things, I'm speaking to me too. It's not like, hey, I've got this figured out. Listen to me. No, we are all called to live this way. And meditation for myself, I think for many of us, is not a strength. Meditation is what we primarily see in view in our text. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear. Keep them in your sight. Keep them in your heart. Meditation is a thinking on God and the words of God. It's contemplating and considering and delighting in God. Meditation is one of the greatest helps in keeping our hearts, and neglecting it is one of our greatest dangers. Satan hates biblical meditation. Satan hates biblical meditation. One pastor once said, the devil is the enemy of meditation. Satan is content that you should be hearing and praying Christians so that you be not meditating Christians. He can stand your small shot provided that you do not put in this bullet. One of Satan's greatest weapons is to convince us that we have something other to do than meditate. And no doubt one of Satan's best tools is what we carry around, most of us carry around in our pockets or our purses. Because when we have a spare moment, when nothing seems to be going on, when things are slowing down, where do we go? What do we often do? Go, go to a grocery store, checkout line, if you're waiting for a second, go to Costco. This is, everybody's there. Satan loves idle minds. Satan loves idle minds and goes after them. Another pastor in the 17th century, he writes this, he says, when you're alone, be sure that you are well and fully exercised about something that is good. When you're alone, be sure that you're well and fully exercised about something that is good. He's saying, have something good in your mind when you're alone, already, in holy meditation or prayer. And he goes on, he says, for whensoever Satan does find you idle, he will take that as an opportunity to use you for himself and to employ you in some of his works. When Satan finds you idle, he will take that as an opportunity to use you for himself and to employ you in some of his works. I think for most of us day to day, that's not where our minds are at. This pastor, he took this idea from Matthew 12. There's a lot of other places he could go. Matthew 12 was one of them. And in it, Jesus is speaking about unclean spirits and what they do. I'm almost there. There it is. And he says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, this is Jesus speaking, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. 
and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. The Bible talks about principalities and powers of the air. And this is, this is the world that we live in. We're here to make sense of the world, right? These are things that are going on. Meditation is God's gift to us to keep our hearts. So brothers and sisters, to guard our hearts and to keep us from evil, let us be those who fill our minds with God's truth, with God's thoughts. Let us be those who speak scripture and theology and fellowship and prayer, who delight in wisdom and truth. And you all know this, but I will say it. What you put into you is what comes out of you. And so in order to foster meditation, read God's word. Memorize God's word. Listen to God's word. Speak God's word to one another. This is all we got. This is the best we got. This is all we need. God's word is for us and for our good, that we may be complete, lacking in nothing. So may God give us grace to be those whose ways are sure, those who make sense of the world and walk with a confident, joyful, and grateful hope. May we look directly forward and may our eyes be fixed straight ahead. I was talking to the, uh, to the group of kids that I was with last night about horse racing. In, in, in horse racing, you see horses, they wear blinders, right? They wear blinders to keep them from being distracted because they're out there on that track to go one direction, to go one place. And the trainers and the jockeys and the, and the stable hands, they know that if the horses are going to go in that direction, they need blinders to stay focused. In a sense, we need blinders. And Proverbs is acknowledging that. Don't swerve to the right or to the left. Let your eyes look straight forward and your gaze be straight before you. We live in a world of restlessness and distraction. A world that wonders if Vision Pro or AI is going to change everything for us. But even though our circumstances might change, our problem and the answer to that problem remains the same. God holds out to us this gift of life and grace, His way of wisdom. He offers it to us freely and daily. His mercies are new every morning. He offers it to us generously. So then, as those who have been raised with Christ, brothers and sisters, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Let wisdom have its full reign in your life, on your history, on your path, on your body. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We have this sure hope, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the sure and certain hope of your word. Thank you for the promises that you give to us. That you give life and rest and joy and peace to those who come to you. Though we face an unknown future, Though we face perplexing circumstances, though we all have things in our lives that are difficult to make sense of, Lord, when we look to you and when we walk by wisdom, 
We have hope. Hope in every circumstance, in every situation, because you are sure and true and never changing. So may we trust in you. May we fix our eyes firmly on you. Give us grace to look directly forward. May our gaze be straight ahead. May we walk in your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.